Let us pray together. Father, as we look at your word this morning, we pray that it would work powerfully in our hearts as we see its truth, as we see its corrections, as we see its uh, exhortations. And uh, Father, we do pray that you would help us through your Holy Spirit to be a people um, that's marked by, by love and unity in the church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue our uh, unity series here at Living Hope Church. And let me begin by telling a few uh, quick stories. Um, the, the first one occurred at a well-known evangelical church with a very good reputation. One day the senior pastor and the associate pastor had a, a heated exchange between each other. I don't recall what it was about. It wasn't a biblical or doctrinal issue. It was a, it was a church matter, a, a decision or a direction uh, kind of a thing. Was the associate pastor out of line for uh, him getting kind of stoked up and heated? Probably so. Was the senior pastor at fault to, to some extent, not, not cooling things down? Probably so, but for whatever reason, uh, the reason things got fired up, it got uncomfortable, it got awkward. Later, the associate pastor came and apologized for his role, but it did not matter. The senior pastor had consulted with a church leader who told him that he needed to fire the associate pastor for insubordination. So despite the fact that they had partnered together in the gospel for 17 years, the associate pastor was fired. The other story involves two churches that merged together in a community. Sound familiar? Uh, But it didn't last. One church was used to saying the Lord's Prayer with, um, forgive us our trespasses. The other church was used to saying, forgive us our debts. And they could not reconcile over that. And so they split. And as the local paper mockingly reported, one church returned to its trespasses and the other church returned to its debts. But both of those stories are very, very sad to me. 17 years of ministry and friendship down the, down the drain. A church split over rigid preferences. And it, and it makes me ask, where was the forgiveness Where was the grace and love? Where was the concern and the commitment for Christian unity? And I've said it many times over the years, but uh, there's a reason the Bible says a lot about unity. Why? Because we are so prone toward disunity in our pride, in our preferences, in our personalities or opinions. From Cain and Abel to Jacob and Esau to Joseph and his brothers in the book of Genesis, 
Those are just some Old Testament examples of disunity. But there's examples in the New Testament as well. In Acts 6, the early church was showing favoritism to the Hebrew widows over the Hellenist Greek-speaking widows in the daily distribution of food. Now, how ugly is that? No Hebrew, no food. And the truth of the matter is that disunity is ugly in any church. And we see this in the early Corinthian church, the first century church there. And so let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we begin. If you're using an NIV Pew Bible there, that's page 771. And the ESV Pew Bible is page 952. And it's very interesting how the opening verses in 1 Corinthians, when Paul writes these, they just soar. He says that the Corinthian Christians have been sanctified through Jesus Christ, called to be saints, called to be distinctive believers in this world, light in in the world. He goes on to write that they have been given God's grace and salvation and God's gifts and called into fellowship with Christ. And because of that, they can look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. So a very uplifting, opening address. And then we come to verse 10. So look at chapter 1, starting there at verse 10. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And so the first thing that we're going to consider this morning is the situation in Corinth. And it wasn't good. It was marked by divisions and quarreling. That word divisions in verse 10 comes from the Greek word schisma, from which we get our English word schism. So after the greeting and the thanksgiving, Paul now moves on to his main point, his his main concern, at least one of them, in writing this letter. And that would be schisms and quarreling that were tearing the church apart. And when you think about it, it's such a precipitous fall from those from those elevated descriptions in verse 2, where Paul says, you're sanctified in Christ Jesus. You're called to be saints. They were cleansed. They were made holy. They were set apart from sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they were looking just like the world. It's as if God had not done a saving, transforming work in their lives in terms of how they were living. And so there was this huge disconnect that Paul was trying to address. This was the situation in Corinth. It was ugly, to use Uh, Cheerleader terminology, U-G-L-Y, you ain't got no alibi, you ugly, okay? It was ugly in in Corinth. So let's next look at these divisions in 
Corinth, more specifically, at least some of them. And they start right here in chapter 1 with divisions over Christian leaders who embodied people's preferences. And you see it there in verse 12, don't you? Some were saying, well, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. I follow Paul, perhaps because of his Gentile emphasis. I follow Apollos. Maybe they were enamored with this learned and eloquent preacher from Alexandria. That's my guy. I follow Cephas, the Aramaic name for for the Apostle Peter. Maybe it was his Jewish perspective that, that tickled people's fancy, some of them. And lastly, some said, I follow Christ, which most of us would agree, well, that's a, that's a good thing, unless it was an arrogant preference that discounted Christ's apostles and those who were called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ like Apollos. What we know for sure is that these people were quarreling over their leaders. And it's not unlike our national politics, the, the dialogue there in, in Washington, D.C., where for a Democrat, you know, Donald Trump never does or says a good thing. And then, of course, for Republicans, look at Democrats as if they, they never have a valid point about, about anything. And so great is the divide and the quarreling there in Washington, D.C. or Springfield, Illinois. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that he didn't come to wow people and gather groupies around his eloquence and intelligence. Uh, He came to preach Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting there at verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I've heard people say sometimes, well, man, my pastor, he is just unbelievable. He preaches without notes. I, I, I don't know how he does it. And they're just enthralled with the delivery of the pastor. Or my pastor is so funny. Oh, I'm just, I come out of there laughing every week at, at the jokes that, that he tells But Paul's point is that it's the simple spiritual message of Christ's gospel that really makes the difference. Here's a a verse from chapter 1. This is chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He wasn't coming to try to impress people. He was just coming trusting that God's message was going to do the work. Come over to chapter 3 for just a moment. Chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. 
I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Who's the star? Who should be the star in in the Corinthian church? It should be God. More specifically, as you look at the whole letter, it's, it's God and Christ and the Holy Spirit. That said, there were Christians in Corinth who latched on to certain leaders, certain perspectives, certain styles that that resonated with them and gave them a sense of spiritual pride by association. That's my guy. That's my perspective. That's my style. And it is surely the right one. It reminds me of our clamoring after celebrities in our culture, right? We just, oh, the celebrity worship that we have. Sports stars. uh, Hollywood figures. The rich and famous. uh, Politicians and all the opinions that, that go along with that. Who's the best? Who's the goat? The greatest of all times. Who's right? But that can creep into the church. I follow Mark. I follow Ken. I follow Jeff. I follow Matt. I follow uh, another leader in, in the church. And I follow him or her exclusively. I put that person up on, on a pedestal and, and nobody else can, can speak to me or minister to me other than that person. Lose focus on Christ and and his message. And when we do that, it leads to divisions and quarreling in the church. Well, another example of divisions is really a no-brainer. You get to to chapter uh, 6, and there's lawsuits among the believers. I mean, you don't have to be a, a Bible scholar to figure out that that's causing problems in the church. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? I knew two brothers who got into a lawsuit against each other. It was, it was so sad to see that unfold. It's even more sad when brothers and sisters in Christ go to court against each other. This was another schism, another example of the church in Corinth being, being torn apart. Paul's attitude is, couldn't you get this settled in the church? I mean, as believers, we're going to judge the angels. You can't do a judgment in the church. You've got to go out and muddy the, the, the Christ and, and the gospel out in public like that. Paul says, better to be defrauded than to take a brother to court. Sacrifice your rights if you have to to keep the unity of the church. And that provides a good segue into another issue that was tearing at the Corinthian church, and that would be religious practice. 
and particularly the eating of meat sold in the marketplace that had been sacrificed to, to idols. Paul's practical perspective is it's just meat. And uh, those idols, they're, they're not real gods. They're stone and, and wood. You, from his perspective, yeah, you, can, you have the freedom to eat that meat. But some believers were uneasy with that kind of freedom. Their consciences were vulnerable when it came to, to meat offered to idols. So Paul says to them, rather than divide over this, be loving and sensitive to your brother and sister in Christ. Forego your prerogative, your rights, uh, when you are with those who, who have convictions about these things. And we see a great example of that in the last verse in chapter 8. Paul says there, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, at least in their presence, right? Lest I make my brother stumble. What's interesting about that verse is uh, Paul moves into the first person in that verse, doesn't he? This was probably Paul's loving practice in the Corinthian church when he was there. He, for, he, he would forego his own rights and, and freedom on behalf of others. So sensitivity and sacrificing personal rights and preferences are things that help keep the church unified. Now let me give you a modern-day example of this. Did you hear the bomb explode? (laughs) Music. Traditional versus contemporary. Hymns and contemporary songs. Newest songs on the radio. What are we to do with this? Hymns only? Is is that loving to everyone? Not everyone has that preference, right, of, of older hymns. Contemporary only. Is that loving and sacrificial like the gospel teaches? You don't like it, just Go somewhere else. Is, is that a loving attitude for us to have? No, it's not. And so we're trying to do both here at Living Hope Church. Why? Because each style has strengths. Yeah, I think that that's a, a valid reason. But also because it's the loving and sacrificial thing to do. But it's not easy. And... Matt has a very tough job here at the church, right? Because let's say, let's say there's 150 or 200 of us here at, at Living Hope Church at this point. That means that Matt has about 200 different preferences that uh, he's, he's trying to, to, to think about and, and to take into to consideration. It's been said that the music ministry at a lot of churches is, 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 the, is the war department. But that's not the way... It should be. If we get puffed up and think, I know what's best, it's my way or the highway, is that good for the church? And, and I don't think that it is. I think that we need to practice love. And it's very interesting how Paul starts chapter 8 when he talks about the food sacrificed idols. Look at, look at chapter 8, verse 1. 
He says, now concerning food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge, right? Human knowledge and preferences and, and opinions and those kind of things. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so Paul appeals to love over a personal knowledge and an opinion. And that was true concerning the issue of spiritual gifts in the Corinthian church. Those who spoke in tongues there in Corinth, they thought that they had the apex of spiritual gifts, that they were at the peak of spiritual experience and, and everybody else was, was kind of out on, on the margins. And Paul comes to them and says, no, no, uh, speaking in tongues, that's one of the gifts in the body of Christ. Oh, and by the way, Primarily, the gifts are to be used for the serving of others in the church. And then he adds the corrective of love. Right there in the middle of his teaching on spiritual gifts, chapters 12 through 14. What's right there in the middle? Chapter 13, the love chapter that was just read for us a few minutes ago. Let me read a few of those verses once again. I'm not sure that we can hear those enough. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, he's going after the gift of, of tongues there and some of the arrogance that was going along with it. But have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I I, I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Last verse I'll read. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for that gift of tongues that, that you're getting all uh, bent out of shape about, uh, about, about those tongues, they're going to cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So as we begin to think about some of the correctives in Corinth that the Apostle Paul is going to encourage, certainly love is is nearer at the top of that list. Love was the antidote to the issue of, of eating meat in that pagan society. And love is the main antidote for schisms with uh, spiritual gifts in the church. It's patient and, and kind. It's, it doesn't insist on its own way. It's, it's for the good of others. And so it is a powerful antidote for disunity. In chapter 16, the Apostle Paul writes this, let all that you do be done in love. So the operative question for us as a church when we're dealing with an issue or whatever, what is the loving thing for us to do? That is a great question for, for us to ask because it's a very good compass for unity in the church. The second corrective that I'll mention is maturity. 
And uh, back in 2005, Tom Brokaw gave the commencement speech at Emory University in Atlanta. And here's, here's an excerpt. Ladies and gentlemen of the class of 2005 at Emory, real life is not college. Real life is not high school. Here is a secret that no one has told you. Real life is junior high. The world that you're about to enter is filled with junior high adolescent pettiness, pubescent rivalries, the insecurities of 13-year-olds, and the false bravado of 14-year-olds. Forty years from now, I guarantee it, you will make a silly mistake every day. You will have temper tantrums and your feelings will be hurt for some trivial slight. You'll say something dumb at the wrong time and you will wonder at least once a week, will I ever grow up? You can change that. In your pursuit of your passions, always be young. In your relationship with others, always be grown up. Set a standard and stay faithful to it. And I guess I would say to you, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, that I think Brokaw is basically right. You can be an adult and still have episodes or even patterns of immaturity, especially if you're a man, okay? If you're a man under 70. You know, my sister works at a high school, and she talks about the, the frontal lobes of the brain. It takes longer for men for that to develop. And she kind of takes that into consideration as she works with teenage boys. i got news for you. I'm not sure that that lobe finishes its, its growth until we're about 80 years old, guys. Really. But the Apostle Paul basically tells the, the Corinthian church that this is one of their problems. They need to grow up. And, and I know I'm picking on the men this morning, but I, men, we, we, need, we need to grow up. Look, look at what Paul says. I, I put myself in that category too. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul goes after the church pretty hard here. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. As infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, well, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And then, I don't know if you noticed this, in the love chapter, chapter 13, which you know, a lot of people think, oh, this is, this is so lovey-dovey. This is warm and fuzzy. No, no. Paul is going after them hard in chapter 13. And this is what he says in verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. In other words, stop it. Stop focusing on the world and mere men and even stop focusing on yourself and, and your, all of your preferences and your desires. Focus on God. Focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Focus on what he wants for his church. And I would encourage you this morning to give yourself 
to the vision of this church and to its priorities. Give yourself to discipleship, which will help you to grow into maturity. Disciples making disciples. You grow as a disciple to maturity, and then you help somebody else who's, who's a, a, a brand new Christian, a baby Christian, help them to grow up. And then give yourself to the four priorities of the church. W plus two, or actually WW plus two. Give yourself to, to weekly worship here, corporate worship. Give yourself to the witness of the gospel to others. Just focusing on yourself. No, look at others. They need Jesus Christ. They need forgiveness and eternal life. And then give yourself to, to small groups, to discipleship in that setting. And then give yourself to service in the church. You give yourself to those things and you are well on your way to being a mature Christian. And then briefly, the last corrective, the lordship of Jesus Christ. Go back to the first verse that we looked at. So go back to chapter 1, verse 10, and then we're going to be done. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Are you a Christian this morning? then I want you to know that your King, your Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, is asking you to agree, to commit yourself to fighting against disunity in his church. Paul's emphasis on the Lordship of Christ here in these opening verses cannot be underestimated. Jesus is mentioned in every verse, verses 1 through 10. And then that title, Lord, for Jesus, you see that in verse 2, 3, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Jesus is Savior and Lord, and Paul appeals to him in demanding no disunity in the church. It's, it's not okay. He's not down with it. It goes against our fellowship with Christ, verse 9. And it goes against us having the same mind, the same judgment and perspective, verse 10. And what is that? Well, it's having the perspective of Jesus. Not just worry about your own perspective. Could be concerned about Jesus' perspective on the gospel, on being called to be set-apart saints in this world, on the issue of sacrificial love and unity in the church. So don't be a, a, a consumer in the church, man-centered, me first, puffed up. Don't have that mentality. Rather, be humble, mature, Christ-centered, have sacrificial love, have that kind of mentality and that commitment to the unity of the church. Years ago, a, a preacher named A.W. Tozer said that if you had 100 concert pianos, and you tune the first one to the second one, and then you tune the third one to the second one, and the fourth one to the third one. He says, by the time you get done with, with that whole thing, the pianos are not going to be in accord. There's actually going to be discord in, in those. He says what you need to do is you need to tune each of those 100 pianos. By the way, there's 50 at this concert, if you're counting. Sorry. But he said 
The way that you get a hundred pianos in tune with each other is you tune all of them to the, to the same tuning fork. And then you'll have unity and harmony. So too in the church, when we tune our hearts and our minds to the Lord Jesus Christ, that's how we're going to achieve unity here at Living Hope Church. And you know what? We have an opportunity to start doing that right now because we're going to come together for communion. And all of us together, what are we going to do? We are going to focus on God's work for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. We're going to thank God for the cross and we're going to remember the cross. We're going to do that together. We are going to be unified in this moment. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for your work in our lives, and we do pray for unity in our church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.